Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's in a wonderfully sunny Bay Area. Today we are joined by Peter Chow, Justin Higgins, John Goodenson, Ab, my brother Ab, Alex Bishop, Marseille Butler and Duke Vu. And we, they are going to add their considerable knowledge to this week's topics in a week that has seen the start of the Euro Championships. We'll see the start of the Euro Championships. We are going to look at the Kamloops scandal in Canada. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is apologizing to Indigenous Canadians after the remains of more than 200 Indigenous children were found last week. Some were as young as three. Many from Indigenous communities gathered this week to honor the lives lost. The remains were discovered in Kamloops, British Columbia, at what was once Canada's largest residential school for Indigenous children. Our national correspondent, Jerika Duncan, spoke with a survivor. Jerika, good morning. Good morning. This is so- such a dark chapter of history for Canada that needs to be told. The Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia used to have at least 51 confirmed deaths on its official record. Well, sadly, one survivor told us he was not surprised to find out at least 215 more students were found buried there. Sometimes kids would not show up in classroom. They would disappear for the next day, and we knew that they were gone, but we didn't know where they were gone. Alex, the calls to cancel Canada Day on the increase amid the Kamloops Indian residential school scandal. How are Canadians confronting its history of mistreatment to its First Nations? That's a great question. Let me start by just doing a land recognition. So where I am in, in just outside of Toronto is the traditional territories of the Erie, Neutral, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee and Mississaugas. And so I think it's important that we start with that that I am not on land that is mine. This is land that was taken from the, the people that were first here. 
the Indigenous peoples, First Nation, Métis and Inuit people. So Canadians are, are there's a sense some people don't really care and don't see a difference. And there, there are a lot more people than I've ever seen before that are actually talking about this as an, as an issue. As a quick backgrounder, the in, Indian residential schools operated in Canada between 1870s and the last one actually closed in 1996. The focus of it and the goal of these residential schools was to assimilate Indians into society. And they were run in partnerships with the Anglican Catholic churches. And the government was financially responsible for this entire group. And every single, and a really important point to, to note is that almost every single province was involved, but every single Indigenous person in Canada is either has either been in, in a residential school or second or third generation residential school victim. So the feeling over, over, overall with people that I work with, so I, I work with a lot of Indigenous communities and Indigenous businesses, is there's, there's an incredible outpouring of emotion. Alex, I'm, I'm going to quickly just stop you. Just give us the, the outline of this specific scandal, which was uncovered last week. And then let's talk about the sure. response maybe of Trudeau and the average Canadian on the street. Just give us that sense first, please. Sure. In, uh, in the lower mainland BC, Kamloops, so outside of Vancouver, there's, there were 215 bodies were, were discovered, graves, unmarked, and many not reported of children that were found on the, on the site of a residential school. This has triggered a gigantic outpouring of shock, of, of public awareness, of media stories right throughout Canada. Okay, and the shocking thing for me was that the last one of these residential schools was only closed down in 1996. So you kind of hinted at this, but the whole idea was that this would be a way of, in inverted commas, civilizing um, native peoples. And what the state did, what the Canadian state did for 100 plus years was to take indigenous children, uh, rip them from their own communities, put them in residential schools, treat them abominably. And the, the whole idea was that they would lose their own language, lose their own culture and become Canadians. Yeah, it, exactly. And it was state sponsored, financially sponsored and backed with, with um, religious Christian schools that were, would indoctrinate these children as young as four years of age into the quote unquote civilized way of, of being. There were more than 150,000 Indian, Inuit, and Métis children that have attended residential schools as well. So this is, it's gigantic, the number. And give us the, the sense of the immediate response to this discovery. Yes, Canadians knew that these residential schools were a thing, but I, I'm presuming that they thought this was kind of the dim and distant kind of black and white past, not as recent as, as 1996. The Egerton-Ryerson statue is being toppled. Who was Egerton-Ryerson? Why is that significant? And is that kind of indicative of Canadian anger to this scandal? Yeah, thank you. So, so Ryerson is a, is a famous uh, Canadian politician who has a number of institutions that have been named after him. And the, the most famous institution is a, is a university. He was someone that lived in, 
the early 1800s and was a huge influence in developing the residential school system throughout Canada and the overall education system in Canada as well. So there's there's been statues of his that have been toppled recently. I think it was uh, actually on the first and as as a result of of a complete unwillingness Ryerson's higher ups at at taking action fast enough according to the uh, the, the people that toppled the um, the statues. And one of the things which I've just been really moved by and I think everybody has is these sites of these hundreds of pairs of shoes being put on left as a monument as a tribute to to these children. Can you kind of speak to that, but also to what the Catholic Church has said? Because I believe that the Pope has weighed in on this, but also the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. Yeah, so I think a lot of us who deeply care about this issue are, are struggling to find a way to demonstrate our support. And, you know, for people that aren't directly involved in Indigenous reconciliation, the leaving behind the shoes as a way of, of, of remembering that every child does matter and indigenous children do matter is, uh, is, has been a very powerful thing for a lot of people to connect something physically with, with this, this event that seemingly is, is, is disparate and, and distant from us all. Mm. Um, indigenous reconciliation. It's kind of something which I, I was always really struck by whenever I go to Canada and at the start of my son's graduation a couple of years ago, there was, you know, this speech given by his principal, which kind of intoned the fact, as you said, Alex, that this school stood on indigenous land and he, and he gave us the names of the, the tribe that, that had it before it was take, taken from them. Um, to, to our American friends on the stage, feel free to unmute yourself. Uh, indigenous a reconciliation, a recognition that the United States was was built on the land of native peoples. How much is that an issue, a living issue in the United States? Anybody want to chime in? Hello, this is AB speaking. I would say there, so far from what I have seen, there really hasn't been any traction and movement on that front. More so on, I guess, maybe just due to the lack of visibility of native and in, in indigenous people in the States. I've seen more traction in terms of the push for reparations for African-Americans and African descendants of slaves, but I have not seen any on that front. But I do think that that is something that could brew in the next couple of years. Thanks to Alex, I actually did get a recommendation for a book called Indigenomics by a uh, indigenous woman by the name of Carol Ann Hilton. And I believe it's a wonderful read about this very topic. And uh, yeah, so far to answer your question, Royfield, really right now, there's really not much of a push for it. To your point about the the Catholic Church, so Pope Francis made a statement, and I'll read it for you. He says, "I, I join with Canadian bishops and the entire Catholic Church in Canada in expressing my closeness to the Canadian people traumatized by the shocking news. That was all I heard. In the past, the Catholic Church has been called upon by Trudeau and by other people to actually make a real reconciliation. They haven't. The only group that is actually a religious group that's actually make, trying to make a re- reconciliation is the United Church of Canada. And they're in the process of, of taking literally hundreds of millions of dollars of church land 
and they're going to make a donation in a few different ways to Indigenous peoples for housing, for healthcare. And so they're putting their money where their mouth is. And, and I'm someone, and I've got two kids who are go to a Catholic school in in Canada, and I'm I, I think what the church is doing is completely insufficient, and there needs to be a lot more action to, to back this up. I'm Alex, and I'm done speaking. Duke asking you to answer at all for the whole of Catholicism, but you are a Catholic. We've had, it seems to me, we've had wave after wave of scandals to do with the treatment of children or, let's say, sexual abuses to, to do with the Catholic Church. How do you think the, the Catholics as a whole and the institution of the Catholic Church should actually respond to these kind of repeated hits on the institution? It is one of those difficult topics that, for many Catholics, it's difficult to reconcile the complete stubbornness and, frankly, criminal behavior of the church and what they have done and the repeated refusal for decades now to apologize and to acknowledge and to make amends for what happened to these indigenous children and for these residency schools. And, you know, there's been movements over the last decade of change to, you know, open up the church and provide more transparency about what is happening within the leadership ranks and how the organization operates. I frankly don't think that there's enough transparency and I don't think there's been enough change and I don't think there's been enough regulation among the leadership to punish and disavow the people that engage in these terrifying behaviors. There's, there's no excusing it. And the longer the church denies it and the longer the church refuses to apologize, you'll continue losing, you know, membership in the Catholic church. And, you know, I'm ostensibly a somewhat practicing Catholic. I still do my daily readings. I have my prayers and I have my beliefs, but I don't often attend church anymore just because of the stance that church has taken, especially on children. Like it is truly horrifying and there's no defending it. And, I I think the first step in, you know, reconciling any of it is apologizing and acknowledging, but like that's the first step in several thousand that need to be made, you know, whether it's financially or if it's, you know, legally, their amends need to be dramatically made and they just have not been. Thank, thank you for that, Duke. Some of the testimony that some of the former residents is, is utterly heart-wrenching. And what I'd like to quickly do is just to invite you, if you are in the audience, um, hold your hand up if you have something to, to pertinent to say on, on this topic. Now is your time before we move on to issue number two. But ju- just hearing these stories, and the one that really got me was this woman, I think she was in about her 40s or 50s, and she talked about the fact that she was her and her brother were taken to a residential school and from that day they were not allowed to speak to each other let alone even in their own native language not allowed and the food that they were given was utterly substandard she said they didn't even know what the food was supposed to be and the one treat that they were allowed were were apples and the apples were, were rotten and every morning Every morning when they had to get up at, I think, 5.30 in the morning, they could smell the bread that the, the nuns uh, were, were, were eating, which were, they were not allowed. It was just utterly just beggar's belief that this kind of, that we could treat children in this way. I just want to make a comment about 
indigenous people in the United States. You know, there's been high profile situations recently with Standing Rock and Mauna Kea with the Dakota Pipeline and the telescope to where, you know, there's been assertions and like a valid claims of ancestral lands and, you know, their stances on, you know, what has happened to their people. But I have a lot of friends who are deeply in, you know, the indigenous community and have like a lot of valid concerns and they have brought attention to a lot of the problems that exist here. Like in the United States, we can't pretend that the poverty level, the unemployment, domestic violence, the education level, the poor quality of housing, the inadequate health care, the inability to exercise voting rights even, and then the extinguishment of their culture and language and, you know, the exploitation of natural resources and their ancestral lands, like a lot of that comes up, but it, it often gets drowned out by what is happening in pop culture and everything else. But there's still so much to be done in the United States. And if you're having these conversations with people and like really discussing it, like it comes up a lot and people are angry and people are upset and rightfully so. And so it's not that we're any better off than what has happened in Canada um, at all. So, you know, anyone listening, there's so much work left to be done. Thank you for that, Duke. Uh, Terry, uh, you raised your hand. Yeah, good afternoon. I'm going to try and do this without ranting too much, but the Kamloops horror is just another example of power and the Catholic Church specifically I'm still waiting for an answer for all the sexual abuse here in this country. I'm still waiting for an answer to what happened to, and speaking of other religions, the Mormon church was literally kidnapping children from, from indigenous peoples in those areas, the Utes and all the tribes in that area, under the guise of civilizing them with religion and, and quote, civilization and using them for nothing but slave labor. They got away with that for 60 or 70 years. I'm still waiting for an answer. I'm still waiting for an answer from the Catholic Church to all the tens of thousands of young Irish women that were condemned to the Magdalene laundries. This was the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. Tens of thousands of women may have died in the hands of the Catholic Church. Look at there's a really, really good uh, IQ squared. I think it's an English program. It's called, Is the Catholic Church a Force for Good in the World? And I, I recommend that everybody that can watch that, please watch that. But look at, when the Catholic Church decided to abandon liberation theology in the 70s to follow the gospel of prosperity, it was over for the Catholic Church. And everybody knew it. I don't understand why people just, I can't, I'm, I was born and raised a Catholic in one of the most Catholic cities in the world. It, it, it's just not going to work anymore. It, it won't. It can't. Anybody with a soul and, and, a, and, and a, a logic, you, you, can't, you can't defend these people anymore. Terry, thank you for that. Cecilia, yours is going to be the last word on this topic today. Okay, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, my name is Cecilia, and I was born and raised in Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia, the time of colonization. And my interest in this topic comes from my involvement. I live in Canada right now, and I work in the, as a lawyer, I've worked in the criminal justice space. 
and I'm working with a group where we are advocating for restorative justice. But uh, what I what I think is of uh, relevance to the discussion today is I have seen a correlation in terms of uh, you know the atrocities that us as human beings have done and continue to do in the world in the name of religion, politics, and other things. So if I think of how colonization came to Zimbabwe, for example, it was a pioneer column that was the Jesuit priests and the Dominican nuns. They they accompanied the prospectors, you know, the people who were looking to to find gold and stuff. And then I also have South African roots. And and I know of um, apartheid in South Africa, terrible, terrible, horrible things that happened there. And, the, you know, the residential schools and other things here in Canada, the system was the same as the system that was curated and perpetrated in South Africa. And so I think that as a human race, we have a lot of things that we need to, the past that we have to reckon with, the atrocities that have been committed in the name of different isms and beliefs and stuff. If we think of slavery, right? Myself being black and African, those are some of the things that I see as, you know, we struggle. <laughs> we, we struggle quite a bit as a human race. And as Terry said, if we have a soul, and myself, I was also raised Catholic because that's who was dominant in the country when I was growing up. And I actually, at some point, entertained the, the idea of becoming a nun because I was taught by the nuns. And uh, I'm happy that I made the decision to say, no, this is not what I want. Not because I, I think everybody who is a nun or a priest is bad, but it, that's what's associated with the history of what has been done by the church. And you know, how that has not been challenged and people have not been held accountable. It's something that blows my mind. And I do believe that all of us here on this platform, we want to see a better world. We want to see so the little that we can do towards a better world, where as human beings, we recognize our common humanity and the things that bring us together, mm. less the things that separate us, because those are fewer and also artificial. Absolutely. And, uh, Cecilia, yeah. sorry, sorry to jump in, but we're running strictly to the clock today. But thank you yeah, for no, that. That's and, and one of the things that we have to do to admit our humanity is to admit the failings that have happened in the past and to confront those. And this is definitely something which Canada, the Catholic Church, has to do around this Kamloops scandal. Uh, this is Mid-Atlantic, the podcast where we look at the news and the abuse from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. We look at US, UK, uh, North American news, and we try and come contrast it the podcast has been running for some for some seven years what you can do is go on to any podcatcher of your choice and you can go and listen to seven years worth of conversation which i have with friends about politics on either side of the atlantic also what you can do because we are on clubhouse is of course go and click that little greenhouse and join the club so whenever we do go live with one of these shows you can be abreast of when the show is going to go out so from canada we're going to move now south of the border to Vice President Kamala Harris. What does Vice President Kamala Harris's somewhat stumbling answers to questions of what the new Biden administration should do on the border with Mexico, what does it tell us about US policy? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Vice President Kamala Harris addressed illegal immigration while in Guatemala Monday during her first foreign trip. The vice president is tasked with addressing the surge of migrants attempting to enter the U.S. illegally at the southern border. During a news conference with Guatemala's president, she said the Biden administration was working to address the root causes of migration and delivered a stark warning to would-be migrants. CBS News senior White House and political correspondent Ed O'Keefe has the latest from Guatemala City. Vice President Harris used her first appearance on the world stage to deliver a blunt message to migrants seeking to enter the U.S. illegally. Do not come. Do not come. If you come to our border, you will be turned back. Traveling in Guatemala today, Harris, tasked by President Biden with managing the border crisis, announced a series of initiatives designed to turn the tide here. We are working on a task force that is about human smuggling. The administration has committed more than $300 million to Central America so far, part of a four-year, $4 billion relief plan designed to help alleviate the poverty and crime that drives many people to make the more than 2,000-mile trek to the U.S. Justin Higgins, I'm going to come to you, sir. The vice president has taken somewhat of a kick in uh, this week. <laughs> this is her first trip abroad. It hasn't gone well. Why so, sir? But I would say the policy is fine, right? I don't think the policy has been impacted. I think that the reports are that she, even from her former advisors, from Biden administration officials, from outside observers, that she did fine on, on the trip relative to her maybe not being what is considered an old hat or a foreign policy expert. She made some audibles. She had some impromptu conversations with the president of Mexico. 
Uh, and apparently it went very, very well. But from the media perspective, like you're saying, she is taking a bit of a kicking. And many analysts and even her former aides would point to this as being a building trend with Kamala Harris in that she really struggles messaging politically. She knew that she was going to get asked a question about whether or not she was going to visit the border. And yet her response, many would characterize, was kind of haphazard and not truly polished, which is a major problem because many people are characterizing her trip overseas or sorry, across the border by her response to a a 30 second question by Lester Holt. So I think it's more people are characterizing this maybe more as a PR problem than policy problem. But it kind of goes to show you the power of PR in politics. So I got to run Royfield, but I hope that that helps. No, it does. And thank you for that. Ab, we have kind of talked about this before. Uh, We talked about the US new administration's policy on on the southern border. But where do you stand with the Biden administration and, and, and its policy Ditto, this wave of refugees which are now back on its southern border. So as far as my personal views, I think that the U.S. has to fix and absolutely find a way to grant these refugees asylum. It has to do so in a way that is uh, dignified and will allow these people who clearly have undergone a very traumatic and dangerous journey just to be able to get away from the instability their homeland which the u.s of course as we all know has played a part in the destabilization of those countries and i would say that the biden administration if if kamala harris um if i were to take her words correctly and that she and the biden administration are looking to go to the origin and the source in which they want to speaking and speaking with Mexico and Guatemala and all these Central American nations and trying to find ways that they can improve conditions so that you don't have these mass mass exodus, then yeah, I'm all for it. But I do think that you kind of have to walk and chew gum at the same time in which you have to handle the ones that are here and grant them asylum, but also have to, you know, shift their foreign policy and, and put a more concerted effort in trying to not just improve relations, but also find ways that where they can improve conditions in their homeland. So that way you don't have people fleeing for their lives. Marseille, doesn't Ab kind of underline one of the problems that the Biden administration kind of has in that really the solution to this refugee, migrant, immigrant problem is the U.S. needs to be part of the solution in alleviating whatever problems there are, let's say, in places like Guatemala. But then also it needs to be tough on the border. It needs to tell people, don't come. So the right can say, hey, you know, you're, you're trying to spend money, do things, you know, for, for, for Guatemala. But then the left can say the rhetoric, the language used on the border is inhumane. Isn't this administration in a no-win situation, Marseille? I think so. I, I think they made some good, and I'm being extremely charitable, they made some good strides in uh, some areas that's not immigration, but I do think they are in a, a no-win. And I think that, I think they're trying to be very careful about how they position it. They're trying to please, you know, essentially both sides here. And uh, I don't think that's possible. <clears throat> and uh, certainly I wasn't surprised by her performance. <laughs> 
the last week or this week or whenever that you know the situation well, happened um, well, i wasn't surprised why not marseille why weren't you surprised because wh- one of the things about kamala harris is that she's supposed to be this great forensic debater she can really unpack an argument because of her you know kind of legal background but so far she has been somewhat invisible since becoming vice president and arguably this has been her her biggest thing to date and it hasn't gone well but why were you surprised because in my opinion she's while on paper like hillary clinton she's you know extremely accomplished and extremely capable of doing her job and probably right for the job but they have this personality polarization if you want to call it or callousness that comes across and now we're talking about pr when they you know when they speak at times and that it's it's off-putting to people especially i mean especially progressive so i wasn't surprised that she kind of made this cosmetic fumble if you will but, you know, if if they're willing to, you know, we'll see where the policy takes them. I know that, you know, we, we're very focused on, they're being very careful because we have some elections coming up. And I understand that. And the, you know, the right is very, very strategic about how they want to frame the direction this country is going. So I understand it, but I wasn't surprised because, you know, she's, uh, she can, you know, if you, if you followed her career, you can kind of see that this um kind of, wanting in in this not there's a lack of uh compassion i guess you could say and that that doesn't surprise me right so we are going to have about another five minutes on this topic before we move on to the uk and eu uh, relations but you can hold your hand up and we will invite you on stage uh, michael you held your hand up what's your point sir i'm gonna piggyback on Marcy's statement that as far as the vice president outing, it really doesn't surprise me as it, as far as the foreign relations trip is concerned. I mean, this is a good trip as far as being nearby home to give some space for her to, to have experiences in kind of spearheading and, and being an envoy the administration in meeting in a situation that's going to require a lot more thought, especially in regards to any comprehensive immigration reform need that is going to be needed to address how to deal with migration issues, but also looking at what's going on within these nations that is precipitating migration north towards a, a, towards the, the southern border. But as far as trips go, I'll agree with Marcy. She's she's a bit of a, a polarizing figure, but it's not as bad as some news outlets would make the trip out to be. It's not a bad start. Uh, Peter, so uh, go, go on, Ab. Yeah, there's one thing that I can probably give Madam President, uh, Madam Vice President Harris, some grace about is. Immigration is a no-win topic. No matter what, you're going to piss off somebody about it, whether you're open borders or whether you are closing the borders. Regardless, it's just a matter. I think the foreign policy, as Justin had said earlier, is solid. It's just a matter of the optics. And unfortunately, she let herself open to where anyone who doesn't like her can absolutely spin this into controversy. And, um, you know, as, as it's been said, she is can be very you know leaving she leaves herself very susceptible to those type of things based on her demeanor and, and and the way she comes across but at least in this issue 
I don't think that even if she had been more, I guess, pointed with her words, somebody was going to take offense. Peter is what Ab, Michael and Marseille saying true, that basically what we needed was Uncle Joe, cuddly, compassionate Biden down there, basically order, but also speaking to the presidents of Mexico and Guatemala. We needed somebody who oozes compassion. And this is all about messaging. Uh, the policy is fine. We just needed a better messenger. I partially agree with that. I think what Biden should stress is the humanitarian case at the border. And that would differentiate him from the previous administration, right? He needs to call out exactly how his policies at the border are different than the previous administration. So like speaking to like better, you know, conditions for migrants that are at the border, Um, basically, you know, call out the lack of humanitarian aspects that happened last and what he's doing to do better for one. And the second, I just want to point out part of the policy goals of Kamala's trip was that actually to engage with those countries to fight corruption And the goal is that U.S. provides a lot of aid to these countries, and we want that aid to reduce, right, the amount of the need for migration. And But corruption at the government levels is really problematic. And so what was lost in all of her comments was that a policy goal of this trip was to establish different anti-corruption measures so that U.S. aid is more effective at reducing the root causes of migration. Duke, you've unmuted, and then we're going to end up with Scott Jones. I believe Kamala was put in an almost impossible situation. There was no winning in, you know, her statements and comments like the vice president, like she has to play a prominent role and there's just no getting around it. I think the controversy would be much worse, actually, if she didn't make the statement about to the Guatemalans not to come. I think the backlash from the right and the media would have been far stronger. So, you know, while this may have been seen as a flub with her interviews and with the snippets that are being taken out, everything she says from here on out is going to be dissected. And like Justin said, there, you know, there's been a pattern, but I don't think it's an incorrectable one. But, you know, we need to look at it in a way to where, yes, her communication style might not resonate resonate with everyone. However, if people are mostly agreeing with the policy, then move forward with it. It's it's a sad situation where media is more concerned about generating controversy than it is about reporting what's actually happening. Utterly a fair point. Scott, yours is the last word on this issue. Yeah, I just want to echo what a lot of people said. I mean, she is in, a, in an impossible position because of the way we treat immigrants in this country like if if we really wanted people not to be coming over our southern border in undocumented ways that's a solvable problem right we just say that anybody that employs them loses all their assets and goes to jail for 20 years we will never do that right and we blame the victims so basically we say don't come don't come stay but we will continue to incentivize the people that employ them in undocumented ways. And then you know, these people contribute to both parties and, and then we blame the victims. So I, this is the thing that I think is a very solvable problem, right? You either, you can't come over the border or you make just an equitable 
arrangements for these people who are helping drive the economy. And we could not live without them in the United States. And so it's just hypocritical. And and she's caught up in the hypocrisy that we all live with in this because we allow an intolerable state of affairs where we blame the victims that come over and we make them take risks to come here and then we deport them and things like this. So, I mean, it, it's just, it, it is one of the most insufferable political arrangements, which is solvable. And if we had a conscience, we could solve it, but we don't. So. Uh, thank you, Scott, uh, for rounding us on that topic. Now we're going to move to the other side of the land. We're going to go to the land of my birth, uh, the United Kingdom. EU talks with the UK appear to be on the verge of collapse. Um, the patience of the EU is wearing pretty thin over the issue of Northern Ireland. John Goodison, can you give us some sense, the reason for these talks and why there is such rancor on both sides? Thank you, Roy Field. You know, I'm very passionate about this subject. I find it absolutely fascinating. I'm sure it's a familiar one for mid-Atlantic readers, but I will, of course, take you up in an opportunity to kind of explain the context and see where we are. So we're seeing this very uneasy implementation period for the UK withdrawal agreement, which was agreed last year ahead of the formal departure from the EU and the single market this January. We're seeing at least wrinkles in the implementation, perhaps even an unraveling of the agreement, a deterioration of UK and EU ties, and a potential even for retaliatory action, which could be something of a trade war between the two parties. There's an incredible amount of background to the situation, and I'm sure that listeners are quite familiar with all of the complexities and details of the Brexit process each step of the way. But skipping over most of that, at the crux of the problem is the Northern Ireland Protocol. This was a key part of the 2020 withdrawal agreement. It was introduced in an effort to preserve the Good Friday Agreement, also called the Belfast Agreement of 1997, which is credited in large part for resolving the multi-decade period of violence and political conflict on the island of Ireland. So the Good Friday Agreement is key to understanding what the Northern Ireland Protocol is aiming to do and why it's important today. So the GFA aimed to erase the border between the UK and the Republic of Ireland. Locals to Northern Ireland could choose citizenship from either of the two countries. People, including workers, capital, goods could flow smoothly between Belfast and Ulster into Dublin and the Republic. So This agreement was made entirely within the context of the EU single market, right? The single market was the glue that held the Belfast Agreement together. Goods and people can flow because the island of Ireland, although having two countries on it, was one economic area. The four factors of production flow smoothly anywhere in the single market because it operates as one economic territory. There's regulatory alignment and there's mutual recognition of product standards. So Brexit in the form that it took under Westminster's decision to leave not only the EU politically, but also the single market and the customs union changes that dynamic because the UK left the single market and it plans to diverge from the regulatory framework that EU members agree to. If there's regulatory misalignment, there has to be a border. And uh, by necessity, you must check products for regulatory standards if they flow from one territory to another 
and they don't mutually recognize each other's standards. So, uh, uh, John, I'm going to quickly jump in. This has been one of the key points of disagreement between the Ulster, the Democratic Ulster Unionists and the UK government, isn't it? That actually Northern Ireland is slowly but surely being cleaved away from the rest of the United Kingdom. Yes, that's absolutely correct, Royfield. And the Democratic Ulster Unionists recently ousted the leader, their party throughout the entire process, Arlene Foster, largely because of such dissatisfaction with the way that she misjudged the situation, sort of aligning herself very closely with the Tory party, even though it could have been foreseen that they planned, just as you said, to cleave Northern Ireland out of the UK, at least economically. Since the Good Friday Agreement says that the border can't go on the island, the solution is to put the border in the Irish Sea. Northern Ireland can stay aligned to the EU single market regulatory standards on goods, so the goods won't be checked between Ulster and the Republic. Instead, they have to be checked as they flow between the island of Britain and the island of Ireland, even though Northern Ireland is politically still a constituent country of the UK. Mm. So it does carve, just as you said, Northern Ireland economically outside of the United Kingdom. Late on Wednesday, Boris Johnson insisted that there was no crisis. Is he right? Can we just have a little bit of Boris Johnson bluff and bluster and uh, you know a waggle of the chin and this is all fine? Or is this the slow but inexorable start of the island of Ireland becoming united again, that we are seeing Ulster drift away from Britain politically? I think that this is characteristic of the way that Boris Johnson has approached this issue from the start which is not to explode the Good Friday Agreement, not to get into a full sort of standoff over the issue, but to sort of slide the issue under the table and almost ignore it, pretend that it doesn't exist, and slowly, step by step, undermine it. Boris Johnson expressed a kind of ambivalence about the Northern Ireland Protocol from day one. After the UK and EU signed the withdrawal agreement, he was quite quickly telling economic actors that they could just throw away the regulatory documents that they would need to fill out as they transferred goods between Britain and Northern Ireland. He said famously that you could take the paper and chuck it in the bin. From the beginning, it seemed as though there was a possibility that the UK government would try as best as they could to undermine the agreement that they entered willingly, the Northern Ireland Protocol. And that's really what we're seeing happen right now. So right now we're at another one of those very familiar sort of endless sequence of deadlines that has characterized the Brexit process from the very beginning. What we're coming up against now is the end of the six-month grace periods that were agreed as part of another transition out of the single market for the UK. They, the European Union knew that divergence in product standards wouldn't happen immediately. So they gave Britain and Northern Ireland time six months to transfer goods without any checks. Now that is ending. Those grace periods are ending. So soon it will be time for the checks to be formally introduced. However, the UK, and this is where we're at today, and this is the source of today's problems and today's headlines, is that the UK is planning to unilaterally extend some of these grace periods, which is something that the EU can't really tolerate. Because some EU diplomats have complained that what they're expecting is this sort of as they characterize it, a salami slicer approach to the Northern Ireland Protocol, which just like you said, Royfield, means that they don't explode it all at once, but that they look for exception after exception after exception 
exemption after exemption after exemption and keep on pushing the envelope on refusing to introduce the checks that are necessary until the Northern Ireland Protocol doesn't uh, effectively exist. John, you know what we should have done? Stayed within the single market. If we're going to Brexit, stay within the single market and all these problems would not be here. This has been your Mid-Atlantic today, folks. I'm so sorry you haven't had a show for some three to four weeks. But dare I say, I'm a disorganized person at the best of times. But we'd like to thank John Goodison, Peter Chow, Ab, Marseille Butler, Duke View, and Michael, uh, Scott, Terry, and Justin Higgins for joining us on, on, on the show today. We do this every other Thursday, once a fortnight for people that understand the Queen's English. You can join us if you are listening to the podcast by signing up to Clubhouse and uh, finding our room, which is called Easily Enough uh, Mid-Atlantic. And it means that you'll be you'll be alerted whenever we go live and when we schedule a show, which then means you can be in the audience and you can raise your hand and you can take to task maybe one of the speakers or add your voice to one of the topics that which we're discussing. Don't forget, folks. Left of centre politics is right thinking politics. Look after yourselves, take care, and we'll see you all again in two weeks' time where we'll discuss politics from both sides of the Atlantic from a British, Canadian, and American perspective. Take care. Bye bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.